When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. To some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. These are lines from Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven, which all of us have lodged in our brain somewhere. Poe is assigned in middle school and high school, and just about everybody falls in love with the stories. The fall of the house of Usher, the telltale heart, the black cat, the purloined letter. The murder in the Rue Morgue, which is the first detective story ever written that has spawned the entire tradition from Sherlock Holmes all the way to police procedurals on television today. I wanted to find out about the status of Poe in American literature. So I turned to an expert on Poe who's been awarded many times by the Poe Studies Association for his many books on Edgar Allan Poe and American culture. Gerald Kennedy is Boyd Professor at Louisiana State University, and I was particularly interested in the status that Toni Morrison gives to Edgar Allan Poe in her 1991 book, Playing in the Dark. There she says that without understanding Poe, we cannot understand how white writers in America have constructed a fantasy of race, which she calls Africanism, that has served and allowed them to maintain white supremacy directly in front of us and yet somehow hidden and invisible. So I wanted to find out about why Poe matters so much, why a lot of teenagers fall in love with Poe, but then somehow never re-encounter him except in parodies and adaptations, and why I believe, which is my conviction, that it's worth rereading the books that move us greatly when we're young. To anybody who's listening to this, thank you for tuning in to think about it. I really appreciate it. Uh, please follow me on Instagram at ulianyc and log into the YouTube channel and subscribe to it. And if you have ideas for books that you want to have discussed, I'm always happy to reread or read new things, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much, and enjoy this hour about Edgar Allan Poe.
So welcome. I am really thrilled to have one of the great experts on Edgar Allan Poe, Gerald Kennedy. Uh, thank you, Jerry, first of all, for joining me today on Think About It. Uh, glad to be with you. You have been so prolific in writing about Edgar Allan Poe, his status in our nation's canon, and you are the Boyd Professor at Louisiana State University. So first of all, I really want to thank you for um, putting Poe on a new map of American literature. Well, I, it's been really the project of my whole career, and I thank you for noticing that. <laughs> Well, that was really fascinating. I mean, I tried to read as much as I could. And if we start by, maybe if you can tell me, where did your interest in Poe start? Um, because most of us, I think, encounter Poe in middle school or high school, and we fall in love with the stories, the scary stories, the detective stories, the shipwreck stories, the perverse stories. Where did you start falling in love well, with Well, you're exactly right. My passion for Poe actually did begin when I was in middle school, uh, when I was 13 or 14 years old, we had a, uh, an operation going then called the Tab Book Club. And uh, students came in and looked through a leaflet and ordered copies of books that interested them. And I spotted this copy of uh, Tales of Mystery and Imagination uh, by Edgar Poe. So I ordered a copy and thought, this will be really, really cool to read. And I did read the first few stories and and loved it. Um, but then, uh, and here's sort of the, the strange turn that this story takes. This was just about the same time that I uh, got the news that uh, my grandfather uh, had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And that really floored me. And um, I, I wanted to go visit my grandfather, didn't quite know what to say to him. Uh, being a 13 or 14 year old boy, you really are not very long on social uh, pastoral skills <laughs> at that point. So I... Um, I, I did what I thought was a you know a good friendly thing to do, which was to loan him a copy of my edition of Poe, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, uh, you know I didn't I didn't think too much about it, and uh, after after several months, uh, my grandfather gradually wasted away and died, and we never had a big conversation about Poe. I never really uh, found out whether he had cracked the book open or not, but I did get that book back mm -hmm. and I still have it today. You still have your copy from the book? I still have my copy from 1961 and uh, it's very precious to me. But the thing that I realized belatedly, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I uh, realized that uh, uh, I hadn't read far enough into the book to realize that one of the stories my grandfather could have read was the facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar, yeah. which which is not exactly great bedtime bedside reading if you're dying of cancer. So uh, the story of a dying man who's then mesmerized or hypnotized. Right. He speaks from the dead and he says, "Please, please let me go." 
That's right. Oh. Uh, in fact, he even says, I am dead. <laughs> and wants, wants desperately to die and finally does when the hypnotic trance is lifted. And then he decomposes right. in a matter of seconds. Right. And it's one of the most horrific endings in any hotel. And I, I often wondered afterward whether, whether my grandfather had ever read that or, and, you know, I was sort of embarrassed that I put something like that in his hands, but, you know, in a very strange, I, I would almost say a perverse Poe-esque way, it's my bond to my grandfather now. And it's quite nice to think that is wrapped up in the in the problem of death, the fact that we we all have to die. Well, really, to, to start with that story, the strange case of Monsieur Valdemar, it's the story of Poe trying to say what happens just after death, and can you speak or write from that place? And then that you're saying your entire career has been devoted to actually really understanding what Poe means to us up to today, to 2020. And in some ways, this is a letter to your grandfather in a way that you were never able to explain maybe why this book grabbed you at 13. Yeah, I think think that's fair enough. I I keep that book by me. I don't go back and read it or quote from it, but it, it means something to me and it helps me to understand why I was attracted to Poe at exactly that age. And I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of young people are drawn to Poe uh, just at that time, because that's really uh, roughly about the time that uh, young people begin to wrap their head around the very difficult idea that however vibrant and totally alive they feel, someday they're going to die. And, uh, I was just uh, working on another project, uh, Norton Critical Edition of In Our Time, and there's a Hemingway story uh, called Three Shots, mm-hmm. where Nick Adams uh, is alone in his tent, and he remembers a hymn that was sung in church that he can't get out of his head about someday the silver cord will break. Mm-hmm. And it's that consciousness of, he says, it filled me with the awareness that I was going to die myself. And I think that's exactly the thing that young people, uh, well, it's one of the many ways that Poe speaks to them because he's so intensely fascinated by that reality in human nature and the ways that it shapes our whole life. And it's interesting when you locate in your work, Poe, in this period when America kind of comes into its own, in some ways that you're saying Poe becomes the author, and you've written this book, Strange Nation, Literary Nationalism and Cultural Conflict in the Age of Poe, roughly from the 1820s to the 1850s, when America is trying to to develop a self-understanding of sort of thinking, who are we as a nation? Yeah. That Poe puts in the center of this two things, and I would like you to sort of explain those to me. Um, he resists this idea of national a national literature very strongly. He says, I do not write American stories for Americans, although everybody else is kind of enlisted in this project to develop a national identity. And the other thing you just said, he 
tells us there's death in life, just about everywhere. And all the stories are sort of this, we cannot avoid this presence and this awareness of life as much as we try to do that. Um, so your interest was in sort of Poe in the middle of America trying to become this nation that has a, a full self-understanding. And Poe is a bit of a stumbling block or um, a paradox or a problem there in that story. Yes, I think so. The, uh, the reality is that very early in his career, uh, Poe began to recognize that uh, there, there was a, a kind of preoccupation uh, with Americanness, with uh, what it is that makes Americans special. And the more he heard uh, this kind of discourse circulating around him in 19th century culture, and of course, it eventually bloomed into the idea of manifest destiny and the great prerogative of Americans to conquer and occupy the continent because it's got to be God's will, right? Mm -hmm. um, Poe questioned that altogether, uh, partly from his own sense of being uh, somewhat of a European in his origins. That is, he did spend five years in England and uh, so had the sense of uh, seeing his own country from a European perspective, which many Americans never get to. And uh, he also uh, was was repelled by this notion that uh, to write American books, you have to write about um, hunting Indians or shooting wild animals or something of that sort. And uh, Poe thought this was a terrible box to put yourself in. And he felt that the the only legitimate task for a writer is to write for the world, for everyone. And he somehow imagined that the stories he was producing, and many of them were set in Europe, <laughs> and so there is a kind of embedded Europhilia there, uh, were actually stories for the world. And he very much resisted the notion that um, uh, the theme of a novel uh, is enhanced when it's an American theme and was repelled by the sort of puffing and touting of mediocre books that uh, uh, talked about sort of banal provincial subjects. The other part that you emphasize is he grew up in London for a bit. He was from Virginia, then he goes to Boston, New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia. He sort of expands this idea that American literature is invented between Boston and New York by Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne, yes. Melville, and Whitman, which is the canon, which to be frank is the canon I grew up with because Harold Bloom, the late Harold <laughs> Bloom, was one of my teachers who uh -huh. said very, very famously the dubious and an, an inescapable Poe who yes. stand and I, it was interesting, and Bloom couldn't stand Poe because it had such an atrocious stylist, and yet he said inescapable, unavoidable, and shapes us. So yeah. he's both has this European dimension, this other one that he's in addressing this kind of idea of manifest destiny and the North-South division or the split that's shaping the country at that point and will culminate ultimately in the Civil War. Can you say yeah. a little bit about that, where he comes from and what his, his sensibilities are? Post sensibilities? Well, I'd like to back up a little bit. I, I would certainly begin with 
uh, his very odd relationship to Boston, where he was born. Mm -hmm. uh, Boston has tried valiantly to reclaim Poe <laughs> as, a, as a native son. Uh, but the reality is that Poe had a, a very hostile uh, attitude about Boston for most of his life and an intense dislike for uh, Boston literary culture. I, possibly if he'd spent more time there, he would grow to, uh, you know, love it and root for the Red Sox or something like that. But uh, he, he uh, was raised in Virginia, and I think that is certainly the most important uh, part of his formation, at least his his artistic sensibility was probably shaped more importantly in Virginia simply because he spent more time there. But those five years in London, uh, I have just become obsessed with that period in Poe's life, uh, partly because it's, uh, you know, it is such a formative period in the life of a young person. We talked about 13 or 14 year olds turning to Poe, but uh, when Poe was uh, just ready to leave London, he was coming up on his 12th birthday. And I think that period in a person's life, a young person's life, is so crucial. And uh, here's Poe living in London or in the nearby suburbs of Chelsea and Stoke Newington, uh, being passed off as Edgar Allen. Right. And my guess is probably affecting something of a British accent just so he can pass, mm -hmm. uh, trying not to stick out too much mm -hmm. as the, the son of a merchant mm -hmm. uh, when he's surrounded by uh, young lads who come from gentry families and uh, have... Uh, you know, considerable family wealth. That was especially the case in Stoke Newington. And uh, and Poe is living in a part of London, uh, very close to, uh, well, in Bloomsbury, very close to Russell Square. And to me, the, the, the salient, the overwhelming fact that you have to factor in about Poe is that he was right around the corner from the British Museum. Okay. The British Museum had opened its doors in the actually in the 18th century, but by the early 19, 1800s, it had a fabulous collection of uh, Egyptian uh, artifacts, mm -hmm. a fabulous collection of Roman and Greek artifacts, sculpture, uh, Persian. Uh, it, it it was an amazing experience. They also, by the way, had a lot of uh, Pacific uh, cultural artifacts on display then. But, of course, the thing that sticks out when you become familiar with Poe's work is the way he so easily, frequently refers to Egyptian sculpture, uh, funereal vases. And you ask yourself, well, Here's a kid who grew up in Richmond, Virginia. What's he doing talking about that? Well, Poe actually saw them and he understood something about the culture. And he saw the Elgin marbles and he saw the Rosetta Stone. Uh, I mean, we don't have letters that confirm this, but it's, it's 
unthinkable to me that Poe could have lived literally a six-minute walk from the front door of the British Museum, which was open three days a week. And it's really the only show in town or the only one in his neighborhood and a wonderful opportunity to learn about the world. And it has something at this point America does not quite have, this kind of encyclopedic view of the world, which the empire accumulates. And in some words with a mummy, which I always find a really hilarious tale because they speak <laughs> fluent Egyptian because yes. three of the people, they just happen to know really good Egyptians. So the mummy is awake and brought back to life and is kind of outraged by the the incivility of these Americans sort of just making him come back to life and then trying to argue that they live in a better, in a better time, that there was progress. Yes. That's one of his fiercest satires of America's fantasy that it has achieved so much more than any other culture and is kind of claims this idea we've progressed beyond anybody else. Um, and so he becomes, so he says he returns to America and then, he starts publishing and writing after his sort of, when he goes to the University of Virginia, I think Charlottesville, Baltimore, Boston, I think everybody tries to claim the Poe legacy. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of put pin a raven to Boylston Street or somewhere at the cemetery in Baltimore or the Raven Society in Virginia. So everybody wants to say yeah. this is our, yeah. which is really interesting because while he's our author in these areas, he's not completely canonized or was not completely recognized for a long time. And as you've said in a couple of your works, he was left out of a couple anthologies of American sort of 19th century literature. So what makes him difficult to assimilate into the story? Why don't people just embrace him and say, well, he's presenting something that's worldly, that is expansive, and that appeals to so many readers. I've always been struck. He's so popular. And then yet he's met with a kind of critical suspicion. Well, that's that's a great question. I think the, um, and I don't know that I can give you a quick answer, but uh, part of an answer would would uh, recognize that uh, in the 19th century, uh, the kind of works that Poe was writing uh, were um, scandalous in the sense that they were sensational, shocking. Uh, I mean, when you put Poe in the context of Victorian culture and all that it represents, all that it stands for in the way of propriety and seemliness and tradition, and here comes Poe uh, uh, shocking us with the grotesque and the arabesque and uh, uh, saying things about American culture that uh, are, are pretty iconoclastic for the 18. 18- 40s. Uh, And it's not hard to see why Poe was an outcast for such a very long time. And of course, there's also the problem of the Rufus Griswold legacy and the stories about Poe's immorality, his drunkenness, blah, blah, blah. And of course, in the 19th century, those things mattered more. Uh, I Can mean, you say something about, so Rufus Griswold is the first biographer who also edits the work. So what's his lasting impact of the image we have of Poe, which I have frankly think lasts until today. I also have a bit of this idea he was the bad boy poet, kind of a pre-punk, punk sensibility, a kind of renegade, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the salute, a moral. He, 
Yeah, I think uh, Griswold created a, a kind of stereotype, uh, described Poe as a madman, a lunatic, who wandered the streets uh, talking to himself, a man who was essentially friendless. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we might ask ourselves, well, why would Griswold, who was then in the very uh, uh, work of editing, <laughs> uh, Poe's collected writings, why, why would he do this? Uh, partly, I think, it's to sell books because he was, he was proliferating. Uh, is that kind idea. of a great irony on Poe, who, who said at some point, you have to be read? And I think the ending of the Valdemar story, which was so yes. distasteful, he said, well, it's distasteful, it gets attention. So wouldn't he have been kind of understanding Griswold's strategy to make him into the baddest poet there is? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And and in an interesting way, there's a sort of double con going on. We we often ask ourselves, well, why in the world would Poe ask Griswold to be his literary executor? I think he played Griswold in the sense that he knew what Griswold would do because he was doing it wherever he went. He was a, you know, he was a kind of uh, industrial process right. uh, uh, in the literary world, and Poe knew that Griswold would turn out a big fancy edition that would do him a lot of good. Uh, and I think, you know, Griswold recognized that uh, Poe was going to be a moneymaker for him. I have no idea how much he actually profited, but uh, you can bet that he made some money from his edition of Poe. So, Which did not go to the family, and Poe had no children, yeah. but he, and he, he just, and to go back to this idea that Poe knew how to work and address the public, and you've thought a lot about who is the public at this moment in America, yeah, yeah, yeah. who's buying these magazines, reading these stories, and it's not just 13-year-old boys, it's actually America really craving entertainment and Poe knew that there was a need for these stories, not just these Victorian kind of moral fables of how to live a proper life and behave like a good American, but these fables that contain death and dismemberment and terror and torture. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, another part of the uh, sort of the conundrum that you were describing earlier about why Poe was so rejected in the 19th century and is so lionized today and it has to do with the fact that uh, he was really describing a kind of existential condition mm. that people did not recognize in the 19th century, but they absolutely recognize in the 20th. Uh, mm. the con a condition, I mean, think about the, the situation of Poe's characters. They're almost all solitary. Uh, if there are relationships, they they will be destroyed. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's a love affair, it's probably already over. Uh, if it's a woman, she's probably already dead. Uh, so in Poe, there is no sense uh, of a, a kind of supportive community, uh, a kind of reassuring home life. Uh, instead, you have a you have a sequence of tales about characters who are living in very precarious uh, circumstances, whether it's in a house that's about to crumble uh, or in a boat that's gonna be caught in a vortex 
so uh, we identify, I think, uh, intuitively with the precariousness uh, of the Poe character. But this is really fascinating. I think you hit on something that he is a strangely modern author for us when we want to think of the 19th century as sort of grounded in different settings. And not a, many of his stories, as you just said, are not in a specific setting. They are about an existential fear. And the psychological fear almost always takes over the actual fear. This, yeah. the, 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 even the, the man in the pit and the pendulum, his mind is what really makes him be terrified. It's what, the thing that's happening is terrifying, but actually the fact that he has to control his mind, and you write somewhere there's a, it's a kind of story of terror control, that these conditions, this exposure to the world is something we learn in these stories. What you just said, the people who made Poe very big around the world are Baudelaire, who's the first poet of modernity, who basically says our experience is not grounded in traditional structures anymore. Then Kafka is a reader of Poe, Mallarmé, the German poet Rilke, Borges is a major proponent of Poe, which are all very distinctly modern existentialist writers to use a vocabulary we don't use anymore. And then there's the other side of the Huxleys and T.S. Eliot and Henry James, who kind of think Poe is using gimmicks and he's writing for effect. And I think there's an enormous amount of resentment and jealousy also. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, yeah, there is. Although, uh, you know, I think both Eliot and James were in their own ways uh, drawn to Poe and uh, probably owed more to Poe than they were willing to admit. Uh, But uh, there's there's certainly... um, um, a, a curious turn that takes place. That, I mean, the, the generation of Eliot and James, if I can put them in the same generation, they're not really quite contemporaries, but um, that's so this the, the 18th century. So this is the 18, what, what period are we talking about here? Well, I think the, uh, the, the, the writers roughly from 1880 to 1920, yeah. uh, who were the first... Uh, we, we think of them as the first modernists, but they're also, uh, and certainly Eliot was in the forefront, taking stock of the past and trying to figure out what's, what's usable and what's not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for all of his uh, disdain for Poe, uh, there's a lot of Poe in Eliot, uh, but it's circulated through pe- people like Jules Lafargue uh, yeah. or Valerie. Uh, and uh, people whom Eliot admired, who themselves admired Poe. Right. And uh, so there's there's a kind of, uh, it, it's almost akin to uh, a sort of uh, social disguise that, that Eliot has to put on as the Oxford, as the uh, yep. Harvard professor. Uh, the, uh, and... Uh, uh, so I, th- I think Poe's had a hard time uh, in the sense that a lot of American authors sort of set themselves against him. Uh, many, many didn't. And you, you, you look at somebody like William Carlos Williams, uh, a contemporary more or less of, of Eliot's, who uh, is one of the first to really recognize how extraordinary Poe is. And 
I just reread Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence, which was, I think, 1921. And she actually refers to Jules Verne and Poe. Yes. And and she refers, so it's actually, at least it's considered part of the tradition, although people are maybe working against it. In your understanding of Poe, first, when he's writing himself, it's a much more complex story of the literary culture. It's different connections, it's circulation, it's much broader than this kind of dominant New England narrative. And what we're now talking about is his influence in the world becomes international, global, returns to America. And there's always these very funny quibs of saying Poe is better in French translation. Baudelaire very famously prayed to Poe every morning and translated all of Poe into French, who is really part of the French canon. I think he's the first non-French author to be published and get an edition in the Gallimard, the Pléiade editions. Yes. And I want to jump a little bit to something, a book that you um, edited with Liliana Weisberg, Romancing the Shadow, about the question of, which is really an amazing collection of essays. And it addresses a comment that Toni Morrison makes in 1992 in a book called... uh, um, in Morrison's book, it's um, Playing in the Dark. Playing in the Dark, sorry, 1992. And she says, no early American writer is more important to the concept of American Africanism than Poe. Yes. And I think I actually had the great fortune to attend those lectures that Morrison gave when I was in college. And I remember being struck by her identifying black characters who served in white literature to prop up an idea of American as self-identifying as white and using Africanism, these kind of creations, which are a mix of dread and desire to understand what America is. And can you say something about what that really brilliant short book by Morrison did to the reception of Poe and the understanding of Poe and how he was reread, which has produced partly the book that you then edited um, maybe 15 years later? Well, I, I should uh, uh, give uh, a shout out belatedly or uh, uh, to, to Liliana Weisberg, uh, yes. who, who actually suggested this idea to me. And she was, she was my predecessor as president of the Post Studies Association. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, so we want to shout out Liliana. University of Pennsylvania, that's correct, yeah. And Liliana and I uh, started working on this book, uh, oh, I guess about 1998, 99, something like that. And uh, I think it is fair to say that uh, for a a very long time, uh, there was a fairly simplistic supposition that uh, Poe was a... uh, essentially a Southern writer who used uh, sort of stereotypical black characters in derisive ways. And uh, uh, some of them, uh, you know, downright uh, repellent in in the way that they're representing, represented. Uh, But uh, Morrison's, Morrison's lectures, I think, forced us to take another look at Poe and the way he's using blackness uh, and uh, to, to see if there, there might be other things going on beside what Terry Whalen famously called the, the average racism uh, of the 19th century. Uh, and I think the general conclusion, and you know, there's a, 
quite a spectrum of opinion. Uh, I, I wouldn't minimize that, but uh, the I think that there's a, a conclusion generally that uh, there's there's a lot going on in Poe uh, that is counterintuitive, uh, that strikes us uh, as just the thing we would not expect Poe to do, mm-hmm. and it's you know produced or compelled some rethinking uh, about Poe's own life, his relationship to African Americans. Um, and to rethink the culture of the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. So, uh, for example, we we can go back to Arthur Gordon Pym now and see that novel as being both a uh, a restaging uh, of the slave rebellion uh, so dreaded in the 19th century across the South and at the same time, uh, a, a kind of model uh, of imperial conquest in which Pym himself becomes uh, the victim of his own uh, arrogance, mm-hmm. his, his own assumption that because he is white, he understands everything. And because mm-hmm. the islanders are black, uh, they live in ignorance. Uh, he does not comprehend their language and so dismisses it as gibberish. He does not understand their customs or practices and laughs at them. And he certainly doesn't understand uh, the meaning of whiteness uh, in that black culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that uh, kind of sets the stage for the horrific explosion, the literal explosion uh, of the Jane Guy and the exploding of the notion that uh, uh, white people uh, are bringing civilization uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, that, that may be pushing the thesis, but... But, so, but what you're saying is what Morrison is saying, let's reread Poe, and yeah. not just as a kind of complicated figure, but saying he actually is, there's no one more important to this idea that American writing depends on a construction of Africanism and to not acknowledge this construction, this kind of double. So her book is really a deconstruction of this idea that there's a construction. And what you're saying, this goes beyond saying there are stereotypes. There are these, there's sort of characters, um, the formerly enslaved Jupiter and the gold bug, who also beats his master. And so she says, let's look at what is, and I think what Morrison tried to do is to say, let's look at what the work these characters do versus this is just a racist caricature itself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, so in, you know, in, in more recent times, the, the stories that I keep coming back to uh, are uh, stories like Hop Frog. Yes. uh, Where, where you have, uh, you know, a, a very uh, a very horrific ending uh, that seems to be uh, the consequence of what we might describe as uh, um, sort of racial ethnic abuse. Uh, wherever Hopfrog is from, it's a barbarian country nobody ever heard of. He lives as a slave to the king. 
he's abused by the king, and when he revolts, uh, he stages a terrorist event. Uh, he coaxes the king into a performance of power. I'm going to scare all the people at my ball uh, by dressing up as an orangutan. And uh, Hopfrog very adroitly exploits this need to be the master mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to victimize him. And it's interesting you're saying it's a, it's a tale of what we understand in the modern usage as a terroristic attack on power. Yeah, it is. I And I keep coming back to that. You, you mentioned the piece I published in our uh, handbook of Edgar Allan Poe. And yeah, I mean, the, I, I am making the argument there that uh, in a very uh, counterintuitive way, there's a lot of um, thinking in Poe uh, that pushes against uh, everything that frightens us and tries to figure out how terror works. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hopfrog uh, has become, to me, irresistibly interesting because it's the only Poe tale I can point to where I think he's writing about terrorism, the psychology of terrorism. This is what makes people terrorists, folks. It's exploitation and abuse. And yes, it's a horrific scene at the end. Yes, we're appalled by it. Uh, but there's, there's also a, a kind of symbolic uh, staging that's going on here that's meant to make a bigger point. And uh, so it's, it's a, a tale that leaves nobody feeling very good about anything. Uh, but it helps to illuminate uh, the, I guess we could say, the, the psychology, the motivation of um, terrorist uh, actors. It's fascinating that you identify this story, which I had not read until I was preparing for this conversation with you. And somehow I'd read, you know, the, the, the Pit and the Pendulum, the Black Cat, the House of Usher, these kinds of stories, William Wilson, that people know. I hadn't read Hop Frog. And I was really struck that there's also... He does, as you said, he doesn't leave you really feeling good, but he makes you understand someone who's bullied like that for being different. Yeah. Um, there's not a morality in Poe, but there's a very clear psychology. That, that's absolutely right. And, and it, I think that's a good distinction. It's very interesting in some ways. That story really struck me because I was really left by that story thinking, huh, so how do who do we actually... <laughs> you can't side with anybody. Then you reread the other stories where people commit these atrocious acts on other people, and you think there is a there's a reason for some of this. And he doesn't yeah. flinch away from explaining it away. Say there's just pure evil. I've I've always thought Stephen King was one of the great inheritors of Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Stephen King believes there's something supernatural in the world. Absolutely, something transcendent, something greater than us. It just happens to be evil. It just happens not yeah. to be God the way we want him to be. It happens to be an e an, a pure evil in the world. Poe is not so clear what that force is, I think. The, That's right. There's something we don't quite know where it comes from, and a lot of times it comes from within ourselves. Yes. Um, I think that's I think that's the key that the the key distinction to make with King, that uh so much of um 
So much of the torment in Poe's own life really comes from within, from his own sense of having been abandoned, uh, which fills him with a sense of unworthiness or self-loathing. And uh, again and again, we see Poe doing the wrong thing, uh, destroying his own best opportunities, uh, saying the wrong thing, uh, and shooting himself in the foot, as as we often say. Can you say something about that? This is kind of what he's known for. He sort of keeps on basically messing up his own opportunity. And you have quite a few opportunities. He's also very successful. He's born into a certain kind of privilege. But you you link that to America kind of trying and also screwing up its own promises in this period from 1820s to the 1850s of the whole concept of equality, of freedom of justice, and it keeps on failing to do the right thing. And in some ways, I wonder whether when you put Poe into this idea of this strange nation that is really struggling how to make true on its own promises, that whether, and, and, and I'm trying to, obviously I'm reading Poe as we both are in 2020 today, which is very startling in a way because the debates that Toni Morrison started in 1992 when she published her book, Playing the Dark, or the debates that you said were going on in in this strange nation between 1820 and 1850 seem to be debates that haven't gone away entirely. Uh, No, they haven't. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I think the the hard knocks in Poe's life uh, probably opened him to other ways of thinking. Uh, That is, I think he... Well, I mean, there was a a story of his uh, close relationship to a a slave who worked uh, for John Allen, uh, who told him stories and helped to shape his imagination when he was a boy. Um, There's the the story of uh, Poe and his uh, friend Ebenezer Burling uh, stealing away in the hold of a boat and getting a little experience, not quite the middle passage, but uh, something of that uh, um, sort of claustrophobic uh, intensity and understanding what it, what it means to uh, be hiding and trying to save your life. Um, the, um, the changes that uh, came over uh, the United States uh, during the period of Poe's career uh, were were profound, and I think uh, probably nothing um, horrified Poe more than the rise of uh, Jacksonian populism. Uh, Poe was, I think, temperamentally quite conservative. Uh, identified himself, if at all, uh, with the Whig Party. And uh, certainly that would be the sort of the impetus of his upbringing with John Allen. Can you speak in today's terms, what would that mean to be part of the the, the Whig Party? What does that fit politically? Well, the Whig Party would be uh, conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, the Democratic Party uh, was more liberal and Andrew Jackson was using populism 
in a completely new way, taking over the government and using his own personal popularity and ability to intimidate other people uh, to get absolutely everything he wanted. Poe saw this as a frightening uh, process uh, that threatened the United States. And there are few things that Poe found more frightening than the Jacksonian mob. Uh, uh, Jackson was able to whip people up and to um, sort of set them against certain groups, like abolitionist groups. Um, when the riots of the 1830s began, uh, Jackson did almost nothing to suppress them. Uh, he was really uh, sort of exploiting them for his own personal power and prestige. So I think, I think that is, you know, one of the aspects of Poe's career that probably is, is hard for students to grasp because uh, it, it seems remote and we've forgotten uh, the uh, sort of the legacy of Jacksonian America, although we now have a president who is more Jacksonian than any president we've ever had. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, what you're saying is it may be harder for students to know the context. And in, in several of your books, you give us, I was really struck by some of the context that Jackson ignored Supreme Court decisions that granted sovereignty to Native Americans who sued successfully. And he just ignored those orders and opened up mining opportunities in Georgia or things like that and removed Indians. And then Poe writes a story, The Man Who Was Used Up, which I was struck by. It's such a political outrage indictment of the Indian Removal Acts, basically of this kind of bizarre general who was a remnant of that war. And the story starts turning gradually into a really fierce, biting satire of the greatness of America removing the Indian savages, in quotation marks. Yeah. At the end of the story, you realize, oh, this story is actually indicting America for its own actions and not saying we won these great wars, although it starts out by that. Um, and what you're saying, students may not really get that context, but I think they are getting this idea that the fear of populism or the mob, which comes up in the in, in a few words with a mummy or in, in, different, in different stories, that that's something that we are part of, that someone who can exploit differences rather than actually calm them in the name of America. That's Jack. Yeah didn't do that. Yeah. Actually, he exploited the differences that are always present in our country. And yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, Poe was, was really uh, caught up in, in the, uh, uh, you know, the uproar that Jackson created and, and his own life, his own, his own, his own career was mm -hmm. really caught in the sort of the backdraft because he was fired from the Southern Literary Messenger, essentially at the very moment the Panic of 1837 began. And it was really Jackson's monetary policies that made uh, Thomas White uh, cash poor and feeling that he could no longer pay Poe and he had to get rid of him. Uh, I mean, Poe had annoyed him in many ways already, as only Poe could. But uh, but the economics uh, uh, were were 
very uh, influential on the sort of the, the course of Poe's career. What you're saying also, Poe was really adept at exploiting these kinds of feuds and controversies. And in some ways, I think in a parallel to today, he would have been very good at fanning the flames of a kind of Twitter feud or something like that. <laughs> he knew how to stoke someone who gets, like Griswold, who became then this, as you said, the literary executor, ultimately, he's his enemy in a way. And he had, he had a plagiarism case and he sues people. So he's generating right. attention. Yes. So he knows this attention that also Jackson generates can be used to actually change public opinion and that yes. public opinion dry is driven as much by that as by the kind of elite literary establishment um, on the on what we call today, I guess, the Acela Corridor. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, there, there are so many ways that, that uh, you know, Poe's tales resonate with things happening in our own time. Uh, I've just been working with uh, the people at Penguin to put together a blog uh, that is connected to my portable Poe uh, mm -hmm. that suggests a lot of connections uh, to specific tales. And uh, yeah, I mean, the most obvious right now, of course, is the Mask of the Red Death. Right. And I can't imagine a, a teacher uh, of American literature who has that book, has that tale available, who isn't assigning it this semester. But it's it's a wonderful parable uh, of a of an arrogant leader who who is in complete denial and uh, finally gets his comeuppance. Well, we'll see. And it's about people retreating from the plague because they are rich and wealthy and think they can be. That's right. They're, they're creating a barrier between themselves and the, the hard physical medical reality uh, that is unfolding all around them. And, uh, you know, another uh, Poe tale that I come back to again and again as one of the richest and, and the most illuminating for our present moment uh, is the story of the man of the crowd. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for years and years, I've, I've been on a personal crusade to try to change the way people think about this story, because the focus has always been on that stranger in the crowd and what an odd character he is and how he personifies the uh, alienation of the modern city. Uh, he seems to be absolutely, uh, you know, deracinated and friendless, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, what happens when you realize that almost everything you see that character do in the story is motivated by a consciousness that he is being stalked? Oh, right. Yeah. And... This is a story that um, uh, really depicts the, the sort of the blossoming of a prejudice from a perception of strangeness mm -hmm. to a sense of suspicion to a whole set of um, sort of uh, um, nebulous uh, uh, proofs that there is some kind of criminal intent. And finally, he announces, this old man is the type and genius of deep crime. He refuses to be alone. Well, sure, but the guy's been chased 
for over 24 hours through narrow, uh, you know, completely empty streets with only this lunatic behind him. Right. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful model uh, for what we very familiarly talk about as demonizing. This is, this is what demonizing is about. You see someone, recognize a difference, and then extrapolate something horrific from that difference and uh, register it as a conclusion. Yeah, your reading really helped me. I read this that you said it's about a man who's becoming aware he's being followed. Yes. The way it's kind of what Kafka does in the trial or something and someone who's yeah. just accused without ever knowing what he's accused of, he ultimately will look guilty. Yes. starts to become worried. What am I being in, in Kafka's trial, which is a little bit of a story, which Kafka, of course, knew in Man of the Crowd, which is not just the alienation in a modern city, but it's someone who's saying who's being looked at in so many ways yes. by somebody else. And what you're saying, it becomes a mark. He becomes the other and this creation, this kind of construction of otherness, of difference. Yeah, and it's a great there are so many little details in that story uh, that uh, sort of support this sort of twisted, perverse way of right. reading The Man of the Crowd. And my favorite is the fact that the narrator puts a handkerchief over his mouth as he plunges into the street. So you get the the, vision, the optics of this are very interesting. Right. It's like today we're all walking around with our masks. <laughs> yeah. Yes, especially. Yeah, it's, it's just right. But, but that mask uh, signifies, I think, to the stranger who keeps spinning around. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, the narrator said, well, he never saw me. I know he never saw me. He couldn't have seen me. But the guy keeps spinning around. Yeah. Well, why? <laughs> we go back to you read Poe first as a 13 year old. I probably did too. I really, I very much believe that books we read as adolescents are very important for us, yes. actually. And I'm qu quite interested, as you are, because you edited the portable Poe for Penguin and you worked so much on Poe. What do you think Poe would think the fact that he's taught in middle and high school so much? But from my very sporadic research, is not quite as present in universities and college curricula. He's really, uh, uh, he's read and I think with great appreciation, but he's not quite ever broken into, and I think people like Harold Bloom are quite responsible for this as much as, and I really, I was just so blessed to study with, with, with um, Bloom at some point, but he was a gatekeeper of culture for some moments. What do you think Poe would make of this, that he's so present in high schools, really around the world, but not as much, or maybe he, I mean, yeah, I don't know how to say, whether it's hard to compare, but in some ways, what do you, what do you, what do you think he would make of that? Well, I think Poe would be delighted by the fact that he is read around the world. Mm -hmm. um, I just came back uh, in uh, late February from a Poe conference in Spain. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there were people there from, Poland and Japan and, uh, you know, other countries. And, um, uh, you know, Poe is one who insisted that the writer must write for the world, mm -hmm. uh, that the writer uh, must uh, imagine a global audience. And indeed, 
he has that global audience now. And I think that, you know, for a lot of reasons, uh, the kind of tales that he writes very much resonate with people in many different cultures. Um, you know, quite apart from uh, what we're facing now with COVID-19, uh, we live in a world, you know, that is full of fear. I, um, I keep coming back to uh, uh, the, the idea that, you know, we inhabit a culture of fear um, that has been uh, forming, taking shape for at least a century. Uh, it's, um, you know, been beautifully elucidated by sociologists, but I think uh, Poe's work helps us to explain, but Poe's work uh, helps us to see uh, how that culture of fear idea causes us to turn to Poe. Uh, he is articulating narratives uh, that project people facing difficult situations, threatening situations. Um, and uh, as, as I argued in that piece in the uh, handbook, uh, he also is a writer who in certain ways helps us to understand fear and manage it. Um, they, you, you're right, The Pit and the Pendulum is a great study of terror management. Right. Uh, the guy survives because he doesn't panic. He uses his wits and uh, rationally paces his cell and figures out just what he has to do. And uh, it's, it's that kind of resistance, that refusal to be crushed by the terror plot right. uh, that that I think makes Poe valuable to us today. Yeah, no, I, I, I want to really thank you for explaining this, this last part you just said, and uh, this idea of terror management. I think it's a great idea that the pit and the pendulum, but also that you said, Hop Frog, the man of the crowd, that these stories are stories we want to go back to, because I think a lot of people are familiar with the stories through popular media, et cetera, adaptations, yeah. um, but those are the stories. And, so, uh, Professor Kennedy, I just want to thank you for actually not, as I said in the beginning, not putting Poe on the map, but redrawing the map of American literature and culture and making Poe one of the major vectors and nodes in that map. Well, thank you very much. Thank Glad you. to be with you, Willie. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me on Zoom during this pandemic. And <laughs> I okay. hope to meet you in person at some Poe conference at some point. That would be great. That would be great. Thanks so much. Okay. okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.